2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, I want to tell you quickly about a uh, sponsor that is making today's show possible. That sponsor is Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easy to turn your idea into a new and unique website. You can showcase your work, blog, or publish content, even sell products and services of all kinds. In just a few clicks, you can customize everything from look and feel to settings and products using beautiful templates created by world-class designers. And there's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code LONGFORM to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Thanks, Squarespace. Here's the show. Hello. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hi. Hello. We, uh, we're doing some live shows. Live shows. Aaron, we're doing live shows. Aaron. Hey, I'm sorry. Shows. I was on my phone. <laughs> we're doing these live shows, man. We're doing one- I can't in- come. I'm having a baby. <laughs> <laughs> the great thing about live shows is you go in there, you cut off your phone- and you just focus on being present in the moment. That's well, what I love about a live show. I hope show. you guys have a good time. Sounds really fun. <laughs> Maybe I'll do one sometime. But in the meantime, uh, where, how can people find out about this? There's going to be two. One is in Chicago on Sunday, November 12th at 3 p.m., a place called The Hideout. I'm going to be interviewing Zoe Chase from This American Life. And then, Evan, you're doing one, too. Uh, number two is November 15th in San Francisco, the Swedish American Hall. I'll be interviewing Kara Swisher. It's a co-production with... Pop-Up Magazine and California Sunday Magazine. We're going to have a party afterwards. It's going to be very fun. I'm going to say this. We want these shows to be incredible so we can go on a national tour, buses, the whole deal. <laughs> so if you got a friend in San Francisco or Chicago who'd be into this kind of thing, let them know. Uh, it's on the long-form Twitter. It'll be on the site. There's going to be all sorts of information about it. But we want to go crazy. We want to sell these out. We want these to be the biggest show in town. Aaron is trying to travel the country with his small baby. <laughs> uh, what, uh, what show is this? Where are we? Uh, this is the Long Form Podcast. What, uh, who's on the show? This week on the show, Jim Nelson, editor-in-chief oh, wow. of GQ Magazine. You've been working on this for a long time. I was very excited to talk to Jim Nelson, and uh, I will tell you guys this. He did not disappoint. Longtime editor of GQ Magazine. Yeah. He's, uh, he is coming up on his 15th year, which is also... Uh, GQ is celebrating its 60th birthday this year, so he's like right at a quarter the whole uh, magazine's run. I will say, I feel like we don't often like talk too much about what happened in the in the uh, interview, but he was legitimately inspiring. He made me feel. I feel like we've had some we've had some uh, some some low talks about magazines on this show in the last yeah. couple of months. Jim Nelson's bullish. And uh, it, it affected me. I walked uh, out feeling great. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I feel like Jim Nelson doesn't actually talk in public that much. No question, this is the longest interview he's ever done. And at the end of it, he was like, holy shit, how long was that? That's uh, exciting. Um, if you've got something to say uh, that's longer than anything you've ever said before, you can probably still fit in an email. I think you can pretty much send as long an email as you want. And uh, there's no better place to send that extremely long email than with MailChimp. They're sponsoring the show. Thank you, MailChimp. 
And now here's Max with Jim Nelson. Hey, Jim Nelson. Hi. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. I'm excited too. I've uh, I, I've got all kinds of questions for you. Good. I'm I, here. To, I'm here to answer questions. All right. Well, I feel like there are many places for us to start, but here's the thing that I have found true of a couple of editors of magazines that I've talked to, and you fall into this category. There is not a, like a lot about you on the internet. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have a large internet presence. <laughs> so I guess that's one question. Is just like, what's up with that? It is purposeful in order to keep me, of course, I have to do a lot of things in terms of like making sure that GQ's social media and internet presence is is vibrant and that keeps me up at night. But I, I find this kind of crazy affliction that's affected all my friends where they they live through Twitter and they become consumed by it and it massages all the things ego self-absorption a sense of sometimes self-importance and even an insularity that are all the things i kind of want to pull myself away from in my daily life so for instance on weekends all i want to do is read novels and old books and old magazines even i love studying old magazines of course i I'm also working on a lot of manuscripts, but it's the thing that I want most in my life is balance and time and kind of in a funny way, I think it does help my job a lot more than being on Twitter does. It sounds so healthy. Are you also like a person? <laughs> I'm also like sitting think- around drinking wine and, <laughs> well, I mean, like, and cooking meals with my boyfriend. Yeah, so. I was going to wonder, is like, do you, do you like not try like exciting, but probably bad for you drugs when you were a young person? Yes, either? yes. But I also do, I mean, I travel a lot. I I assure you that I'm incredibly engaged with the world. I, I'm like a travel junkie. I, I almost every weekend, if I'm not, I have a weekend house that we spend in New, on the Delaware River, and uh, that keeps me sane. But if I'm not there, I'm traveling and happy to be just sort of checking out a, a new city, a new scene. Some of that goes back into the magazine, my work at the magazine, because a lot of what we do is, besides features, is covering what's going on in the world. Mm-hmm. Part of that is also being in the position that you are at that magazine. You don't need to do that stuff on some level. And I I, want to talk to you about that perch because I feel like that's a pretty interesting perch in 2017. But because there is not a whole lot about you, I feel like we should demystify things for a second. (laughs) Tell me about how you got your start in this business. Yeah, magazines, they were my... third career, actually. Uh, After college, I started out in the news business at CNN in the 80s. Um, That was sort of in my blood, my my grand... times. I know, (laughs) I know. The Iran-Contra scandal, I was field producing, staking out Oliver North's house. Did you want to be on TV? I didn't want to be on TV, no, but I loved writing. And I loved it in particular when I realized what TV news was. The part of it that I liked was that it was oral. You had to learn how to catch people's attention through the ear. And and I don't think people realize that unless they actually write TV news. That, yeah, there's someone usually 
beautiful or handsome you know in front of the camera talking smoothly and there's all kinds of visuals going on but the only way you really hear this stuff or a story resonates with you is orally and i and i kind of loved for a while for a brief while <laughs> i loved doing that it was see my grandfather was a white house photographer and his son my uncle who's sort of like a hero to me was the first white house bureau chief for CNN, Washington bureau chief. And I thought I wanted to do it because I, I was excited by their life of travel and just a, a career that just seemed larger than life. Mm -hmm. But when I actually did it, it's much smaller than life. <laughs> <laughs> it is by definition smaller than life. I mean, like it's not at the top, right? No, of course not at the top. And that, and that can be exciting. But what I also learned very quickly is that the sort of daily churn, and it's kind of even connected to this Twitter conversation we talked about, the daily churn of doing news keeps you from getting to more meaningful, deeper truths. Mm -hmm. And you just are reactive. You're just spending all your time reacting. And I remember, this is a terrible thing to admit to, but when the challenger happened, <laughs> this is so terrible, but my friend called me and said the challenger and you know, exploded. And my first thought was, oh, shit, I'm going to spend the next weeks and weeks in this flurry of reaction and there was going to be something obscene about it. I just remember it unsettled me thinking that, oh, I know what's going to happen. This is going to explode their ratings. I just went to work with a sense of doom. Mm -hmm. it, it was like you, you were just horror too. You were just seeing the world through like 24 seven TV goggles. That's right. Yeah. And I also, people who worked in TV news get incredibly frazzled and burnt out really quickly as do people who work in social media too much. And I just always kind of wanted to have a, I wanted to tell bigger stories. I got frustrated. I remember one day saying that most of my job was writing either what we call 25-second tells. A tell is something that's just straight news story without uh, voiceover video. And I would be like, I'd have to tell a story about Algeria in 25 seconds. And half of that is spent saying, you know, this country that's called Algeria, you know where <laughs> that is and how it was affected by this and that. And then you spend 12 of those 25 seconds sort of just catching the, the listener or the viewer up and then the rest of it telling the story. And it just depressed me after a while. And the other thing was that for a while I thought I wanted to live in L.A. and I wanted to work in Hollywood and I wanted to make movies. I had that. I was just the walking cliche of the kid at, who at 25 quits their job. I think I worked for four years at CNN and I just packed all my bags and went to LA. Place and I, where everyone goes to find meaning. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and they, uh, it's the last place you should probably go looking for meaning. And I, and I, my very first job in LA was working on the 100th episode of Who's the Boss, um, <laughs> serving fake champagne and cake, anniversary cake to the audience. Um, I took whatever job I could get, and that helped me get a job, an interview as a writer's assistant. And I ended up getting hired to be a writer's assistant for a couple of assistants. I wrote about this for GQ once called The Horrible Bosses of Hollywood. <laughs> and, you know, I wrote spec scripts, and I thought I wanted to. That was between like 25 to 30, pretty much. Yeah. And I worked with some great people. I worked on a couple of Norman Lear shows. I worked with people that I. I got to admire on a couple of, most of the time when you work in in Hollywood, to be clear, you work on like pilots and six episodes and shows that last 11 episodes max. And, you know, you can work for years and years and years and never get on a hit series. How did you know when it was time to pack it up? I think um, there was this thing called magazines that was calling me. And, and honestly, it was it's the, it's the funniest thing because I was a Harper's Magazine fanatic. 
and also the New Yorker and some other magazines, Atlantic back then, I would just read them cover to cover and I would like cut out the articles. I would Xerox them and send them to friends, give them around to the reporters at CNN. I was probably just a obnoxious pill. <laughs> but I just all thought these stories were incredible and affecting and I wanted to share them. And when I went out to LA, I was, I was maybe I retreated even more to the world of magazines. I would... Because L.A. was not, especially then in early 90s, is not like um, you couldn't find a lot of people who cared about Harper's Magazine. <laughs> but as it happened, a friend of now mine... Now if you go to L.A., it's just... Now it's just full of Harper's junkies. <laughs> that's, that's the whole place. A friend of mine knew these two guys, Jack Hitt and Paul Tuff, and uh, she worked with Fred Friendly, um, who was a radio producer, actually. And Paul and Jack would come out to L.A., and she's like, I know you're like a Harper's freak, you should come out to drinks with us one time. So I did, and I was probably, again, so overwhelmingly nerdy about it. I just asked them so many questions. And at one point, Paul was like, whoa, you know, maybe you should be a stringer for us. And my first job in magazines, while I still was in L.A., I, was, I would make $150 a month to send to the Harper's Reading section. I was sort of like the LAI, things that I thought I had read. And, and I started to learn how to do it, too, how to find odd documents. And um, sometimes it was the artwork that was in LA galleries. But a lot of times I would try to snoop around and call a friend and get a Hollywood studio executive's memo or something <laughs> like that. And we started. I started getting things in the magazine right away. And I can't tell you what a thrill that was. Did it feel different than these other spaces you had been in? Like, did it feel different than CNN? And did it feel different than being in these writers' rooms in Hollywood? It felt a lot different. It felt, for one, I felt like I was the, even if it was just one little piece, I felt like I was the architect of my own destiny, that I was finding this stuff. I was, it was my eye. And that mattered a lot to me. I mean, there are parts of working in Hollywood where you're working on something creative and it actually does mirror the magazine experience in some ways because you're working on a team effort. But just getting in something that I also just thought was so meaningful, I thought this magazine just you know, rocked. And so to see it, and then Paul came back and, and, and Jack came back on another trip and they were, they said to me, I was like, how can I get more involved? <laughs> and they were like, well, you could apply for the internship. You know, the fact that you've been a stringer might help you, but you're going to have to start from the very bottom. And uh, I applied for the internship. I was 30. I got it. I moved from LA to New York to make no money. <laughs> Uh, I had saved like a couple thousand bucks from working on sitcoms and I just started doing this internship and as soon as I did it, it's just this community of thinkers and talkers and writers. David Foster Wallace would come by the office and work on, you know, the cruise ship piece and state fair piece and it just blew my mind that I could be a part of something like this. And of course, I was mostly just fact-checking Harper's Index and trying to figure out what the ratio of uh, per capita spending was, uh, you know, for some factoid. But then after that, you do that that internship for four or five months, you get to do uh, the kind of work that you always dreamed of. What and was I, it like to be the 30-year-old intern? It was a little bit of an adjustment for me. Part of it was just that I, I knew that it was, for me, it was the right move and it felt right that way. But I also felt like I had a little bit more to lo to lose. You know, if it wasn't this, then I was just going to wash off. I didn't know what I was going to do. And then afterwards, I didn't have, at Harper's, a job opens up glacially. I mean, there's just not that many positions opening. So I kind of freelanced for six months. And then a job opened up at the reading section. And Paul 
thought of me and uh, I got it and I started working at the reading section and eventually ran that with a woman named Alexander Ringe and thus began another four happy years until until I decided to move on. <laughs> and I'm interested in that time in Harper's, although I feel like we've had a lot of people on the show from that kind of like, it's like mid-90s yeah. era of Harper's. Yeah. I was there in 93 to 97. Tell me about making the leap from Harper's to GQ. It was scary because Harper's was unlike any other place. When I finished the internship, I would go to places like New York Review of Books. Lewis Lapham would set you up with an interview with Bob Silvers or something, and it was just like you'd walk in there and you th- you'd just see piles of books, and you'd think that you were gonna, they were going to topple over and kill everyone. And it was just like a different universe. It wasn't a glossy magazine. But a friend of mine, Elena Silverman, who is now at the New York Times Magazine, she had gone to Vogue from Harper's spent a year there as features editor and then went to GQ. And she told me, she's like, do you ever read GQ? And I was like, nah. (laughs) She's like, you should really read it. It's actually got this great feature writing. And I just started reading it and I kind of couldn't believe it. And that was, that was the time when they were running like Tom Junode and, you know, David Granger was editor there, Elena. um, And they were running just great, great stuff. And I got drawn into that. And it was the first time I thought, I guess I really could imagine leaving Harper's and working on a glossy and making more than $23,000 a year. <laughs> it would be incredible. <laughs> and uh, so then a job opened up and I interviewed with Art Cooper and that was like interviewing in the era of Mad Men. I mean, it was just like open up a bottle of bourbon, you know, just during your interview. You know, Art Cooper was this legendary editor. Uh, he was the editor for 20 years of, of GQ. And that truly was... I'm, I'm happy that I got to see that because the first six years... I've been at Harper... I mean, at GQ since 1997, which is crazy. I've been editor since 2003. And I'm so glad I got to see those first six years. It was sort of... To be honest, it was the tail end of Art Cooper's career. And it wasn't maybe his golden years because... Granger had left and he was feeling assailed by Esquire on the one side and on the other side there was you know these laddie magazines Maxim then there was Men's Health Men's Journal these were health juggernauts and GQ was trying to I guess hold up a flag for what seemed to me like Rat Pack era gentlemanliness and then also some great long form but it just felt like it needed I felt like for those six years that I was living in a different era, mm-hmm. that I'd gone from one kind of strange magazine culture, Harper's, to another GQ. Did people think you were selling out? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Some of my, I mean, they all understood because they're all making $18,000, $23,000. They're like, okay, see you later. Tell me what it's like over there. But also, you know, Harper's is a great place, but it's, as, as, as I'm sure some of these people talk about it, it, it is, it's a kind of monoculture. And just... The curiosity of seeing what the world was like outside of there um, got the better part of me. And so I, I, w- I witnessed a different era uh, of GQ for six years, and I got to witness also what it's like to run a magazine, to see somebody else do it, so that when I actually got the chance, I, I knew how complicated it was. Hey, I'm going to put Jim on hold for just a second, tell you a little bit about our sponsor today. The show is supported by Squarespace. 
Are you ready to start your new business? Make it stand out with Squarespace. They've got beautiful templates created by world-class designers, and Squarespace makes it so easy to turn your idea into a new and unique website. Uh, just over a year ago, I started a uh, company, a podcasting company. It's called Pineapple Street Media, and the first thing we did was build a website because you need a website. You just uh, you got to do it. Here is a fun fact. Built it with Squarespace. I waited till like the last minute, really needed to build something, and it was so easy. It took like two seconds. It looks great. We are still using Squarespace to this day. Nothing has ever broken. It always just works. That's how Squarespace works. It's super easy. A couple other things you should know about uh, Squarespace. One, everything's optimized for mobile right out of the box. It just works on people's phones. You can use Squarespace's analytics to help you grow your audience in real time. And best of all, there's nothing to patch, install, or upgrade ever. If you do hit a snag, again, we have never hit one, but if you do, Squarespace has award-winning 24-7 customer support uh, right there to help. The future is coming. Make it brighter with Squarespace. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code LONGFORM to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, that's squarespace.com, offer code LONGFORM. Thanks very much to them for sponsoring the show. And let's get back to Jim Nelson. Can you tell me about getting that job? I mean, there must have been a lot of people who were up for that job. There were. And I think the reason that I got it in some part was because I didn't know if I wanted it. In that, at that point, I had started writing a lot, a lot more. I was also always wanted to do, you know, I thought I wanted to be a long-form feature writer. And I had done several pieces for Art Cooper while I was still trying to edit I can't do like the David Remnick thing and I'm so in awe of what he does like those long, long, long people while, while running a weekly. I don't know how a guy like that does it. But I was trying at that point to just steer my career more into a writing path and I talked Art Cooper into letting me work with just three or four writers. It was like Chuck Bowden, Liz Gilbert, Andrew Corsello, a few others and I would just write three to five features a year. I did a piece on AIDS deniers, this crazy, wacky yeah. act-up group in San Francisco. I did a piece on the House of Lords, which I loved writing about how they were trying to get rid of their peers. And it was kind of a... It helped me, though, figure out how to be in that voice and how to be kind of funny but also serious um, and to how to toggle between those voices. So I was really grateful for that. And then when Art Cooper announced he was leaving, Art threw my hat in the ring along with someone else. Um, and then a bunch of people put their hats in the ring. And I thought, I, I was just reading you know, in, in the New York Post. They love to speculate about that stuff. And I was just, I was like, there's just no way I'm going to get this job. But I wrote a memo and I interviewed with James Truman, who was the editorial director then, and interviewed with Cy Newhouse. And I just kind of was like, I think part of it was because I wasn't sure that I wanted it. And I kept saying, this is what I think you should do with GQ. I think you should modernize the fashion. You should make it more serviceable, relatable, demystify some of that stuff. And then the thing that's not that's not wrong with GQ is features and report. And I want to do more of that. I just want to make it livelier and bring in new voices. And I said, if you want to get rid of that, you should not hire me. 
And, uh, and I was just very clear because I also didn't want a job that I wouldn't want, you know? I, mm-hmm. I didn't want to be responsible for a publication that I would have to take out all the interesting parts. And I thought, I worried that might be what they wanted. And it's interesting, I wrote this long, long, long memo and I, when Cy Newhouse died, I just recently, I, I mentioned this in a piece I wrote about him. Yeah, but, I read it. Yeah, it was just like, he was amazing. He asked a zillion questions about what I wanted to do and I think James Truman had already decided that he wanted me. And then he had that great quote where he said, look, a magazine is a mix of constancy and surprise. You have to have enough constancy, columnist, voices, design, things that make people feel like they know that terrain and then just surprise them all the time. And that was actually incredibly liberating to hear that because it's exactly what I wanted to do. And is that when, I mean, it sounds like you were kind of ambivalent about whether or not you wanted the job. Uh, Yeah, I was ambivalent if I thought that they were going to want to take it into something that I didn't want to take it. I also thought, well, there goes my writing career. Yeah. Um, and I, and I, I really was. I mean, for the first two years of that job, I felt like I was sinking. I felt like, I mean, it was thrilling. I just was trying to reinvent it. And I was, every issue just felt like I didn't have any rhythm yet. I didn't have any, I didn't know how to do this. And what uh, do you do when you're in a job and uh, you don't know how to do it and there's no one above you? I mean, what, how do you deal with that? Well, you remember something that actually Art Cooper said to me years ago, which is like, in the end, remember it's four ninety nine and <laughs> $4.99 an issue and another one comes next month. And that was actually kind of liberating because like it let me say I can screw up and I can start all over again next month. Did you screw up in those first couple of years? When I look back at those issues, I think that they were good. They were just trying to be something else. I, I had to figure out what my GQ was going to be and what I wanted it to be. And it was a little all over the place. I was Part of it was trying to identify this thing that I eventually freed myself of, which was thinking so much about who this reader is. In fact, the reader of GQ is incredibly varied, right? There's people that read it. They come up to me sometimes. And they say, like, I've been reading it since I was in grade school and I'm 58 now. And I, you know, and that makes me so happy when I hear that it, somebody or some people come up to me sometimes and they say, you know, I basically use it as a manual for style growing up, all this stuff. That makes me incredibly happy. But I also know that some people read it for great feature writing and reporting. And, I, and I, as I got more confident, I, I realized that I could create something that was just what I wanted to read. As simple as that. Had you ever been a boss before? Never. Never been a boss. That was another thing that was that was tough. Just realizing that everyone's waiting on you for all the answers and all the direction and all the... Um, I mean, it's quite natural if you just have to remember that that's what you did with to your old boss. But the pressure was also, in the beginning too, there was a lot of... I would lose a day in agitation over some page six thing about how Jim Nelson is talking behind closed doors. His door is always closed, you know, and things like that. And I'd be like, God, Jim Nelson spent money on a car to Palm Springs. And I would just be like, what? Who is telling these stories? Then you get you get vaguely paranoid. And then you just at a certain point, you just don't care anymore. You just you realize that the gossip columns and the and the page six stuff and, and all that it. It is this uh, fictitious world that you can choose to either 
tune in or tune out of. And it doesn't really matter if, because one day I remember I missed something that was horrible about me. And I just didn't, I hadn't read page six that day. And then someone later on said to me, oh, did you read that thing? It was really terrible. And I was like, yeah, I realized it hadn't affected my mood because I hadn't read it. <laughs> so that helps too. Yeah. Help me understand that thing just a little bit better. Like you at that age, right? You spent like what, six years at Harper's? Yeah, uh, four years at four Harper's. Four years at Harper's, six, six at years Har- in that job. So it's like 10 years before. Yeah. You're like sitting in LA yeah. looking for obscure documents while handing out fake champagne to TV <laughs> audiences. It was quite the life. <laughs> and 10 years later, you're running this place and people are writing fucking articles in the paper about whether or not your door is open. Yeah. I, I think, um, I also think that people think the culture of Condé Nast is all nasty and, you know, hushed town cars and all this kind of stuff. And one thing I got to know pretty soon was that, like, Cy Newhouse was completely amused by that stuff, by the gossip stuff, but he didn't care. He always stuck by his editors. He took the long view, and and that just helped me too. There were a couple of also, like, fights I had to have along the way that gave me a little bit more confidence that I didn't have to worry about all these things. I remember one of the first issues I did, I had this story about, it had a gay theme in it, and I put... It was Rick Santorum's Big Gay Adventure was the cover line. <laughs> and it was when he had said those stuff about bestiality and all stuff, if you recall. This is like 2003 or four, And it was just um, absurd. So Robert Draper, the writer, ended up profiling him. And we put that cover line on. And, I'm, and I had to present the magazine every month to sign Newhouse and all the executives. And when I presented it to them... Before or after it's like going to press? Just before. It was called, we used to call it print order, which meant that you would present the book before you could order it, before you could actually send it to the (laughs) printers. Because if Cy didn't like something or, you know, somebody had a problem with it, you might have to pull something. That sounds real intense. It was super intense. That was the most, I mean, my job has changed in many, many ways, but one of the ways it's changed most appreciably is in that sort of deadline pressure that because now it's like there's a zillion deadlines every day and you, and it didn't it is not as just you know print centrically anxious making that way but every month that man that was the biggest day that I'd show it to sign the executives and I remember being a little bit like I was trying to change the magazine trying to modernize it we put Johnny Knoxville on the cover of the first issue I did and we didn't know how if they were liking it if the readers were going to like it but I remember having that cover and it said Rick Santorum's Big Gay Adventure and one of the executives, who I will not name but who has passed on, stopped me right there. And he had once been publisher of GQ, so he knew. And he's like, look, this magazine cannot be seen as a gay magazine. And I knew what he was saying. Like, this is a piece of advocacy journalism, you fag. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember I got so angry I just, I just defended myself in front of all of them. In front, of, I was just like, if you're trying to accuse me of advocacy journalism and you don't have enough foresight to see that this is a news story, a legitimate story, this isn't a gay story, it's a story that everyone should care about. And I'd invite you to read it before you have an opinion. And then Sai looked over and laughed. And then we moved on. And that always meant so much, that laugh. <laughs> it was like, I guess that, I guess Point Nelson, I guess, I don't know. <laughs> I, I guess I can publish this story and I don't have to change the gay cover line. 
Um, it's all in a laugh. Yeah. What has been hard about the job? I think what's hard about the job is constantly trying to find new revenue streams, new platforms, then you discover and you go and you enter in those platforms and you think you're doing a great job and then you realize those platforms are dead ends. I'll just give you one example. Several years ago, the iPad was supposed to save publishing, if you yeah, remember this. I remember that, yeah. Yeah, and our company went full bore into it and, you know, I'd I could see why they thought it might, and there and there were so many upsides. You know, it was almost like the year of magical thinking because it was like, yeah, we won't have to kill trees, and you'll even get more money from the consumer because you know they're gonna spend all their money on a subscription and it's gonna be free, no paper. And we put so much time and effort into this beautiful iPad edition of GQ, which we still do. But we thought it was going to save publishing. And what it meant was that we were now doing yet another edition of GQ with designed and everything. I mean, the design is also a huge part of it for us. We, Our design director, Fred Woodward, is just kind of, we call him the Freditor. And he just put his heart and soul into this uh, iPad edition, and it didn't. It ended up being an enormous time suck. There are other things, there are new platforms all the time that, I think we should be in, like, I think we should be in Snapchat. We are. I, I actually like our Snapchat Discover thing. I love it. Now, what the ratio of profits that makes versus the old, traditional, ridiculously lucrative print glossy format is, it's just a completely different model. And, you know, that's been the struggle. It's the same struggle everywhere in, in publishing nowadays of trying to figure out how do you keep doing what you do and do well, you think, and make it rich and engaging in other platforms and still make money. It's why we're doing podcasts, I think. <laughs> I um, <laughs> We could talk about podcasting if you want. I um, I remember that 2011. I remember that like iPad app. Do you? Craze, yeah. It was so optimistic. Mm-hmm. I mean, in hindsight, it was naively optimistic. Like, yeah. Well, this is going to solve everything, and yeah. then we're done with this. And and I wonder whether you feel more cynical about those things now. I wouldn't say it's cynical, but I do feel like I, I've been through enough of these waves now where I feel like, okay, I can smell when something's being sold to me. And I also, sometimes you just don't know, though. You just don't know. Like, Instagram has actually surprised me because it's been... You think some people think, oh, that's mostly just images, but we have, they're actually a great partner for sort of feeding stories and we get traffic by linking in bio stuff. But like we have an incredibly engaged Instagram reader and we're, and we do different things with them and that's become like this profitable uh, source for us. And I think that like when I look ahead, I think, yeah, Instagram, that's going to be a big part of GQ's future for mm. a long time. Video is another thing. Like again, it's not like you get cynical. You just get, you like, what you hope is that the promises keep up with your abilities to produce at the pace that you can. And um, I think the thing that is also challenging nowadays is figuring out in a fractured digital universe, how do you keep that GQ personality that you spent so much time unifying under one print roof, right? In the print version of GQ, you've got all these different 
personalities, voices, and the thing that keeps it together beyond the adhesive <laughs> is this sensibility, right? And right. this idea that this goes with that and the pace and the mix and all these things that I love putting together. Like, There's also like a inherent quality level. Yes. Like the magazine is is at a certain bar. There's things that are on different axes of quality, but the magazine is at this certain bar. And I imagine that a challenge has to be trying to extend that bar when you're going to be on 15 new platforms and have all these daily deadlines and be doing all this like new work, essentially. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I think we're slowly getting there. It's like one of the things that has become, that was initially a challenge was we would all think of like the print side and the digital side. And now what we all think about is, okay, we're just, stop saying GQ.com and GQ, the print edition. It's just GQ. (laughs) And, and, and just once you cross that line, you don't ever want to go back to it. I just can't imagine the job has changed so much, even in the last three years that when I look back, I think, God, I was just such a quaint little fucker. (laughs) (laughs) Is it fun? Is it fun doing all this new stuff? It, it is fun. What's fun is that puzzle that I'm telling you, it's also the hard part, which is like, yeah, how do I figure out how you keep creating new platforms that keep that voice and make sure that you're still doing the long form, long view assignments and don't just get into this reactive thing. Because look, here's the simple reality. I could, I could meet all our website traffic goals just by giving hot takes on Donald Trump. I don't want to do that. That makes me feel bad. (laughs) Um, I won't feel great unless I marry that with that as our next great experiment. It's not just long form feature writing for the print edition that then gets translated onto the website and does great. But how can we do that on a digital model as well? And you just have to be savvy or you have to like negotiate your contracts differently. We've already changed the way we pay writers. We talk more about like project fees than we do word rates. And I think that's actually smart because word rates just will drive everyone crazy. But that is a cultural shift that's happened really only the last few years. I've had a bunch of people on the show recently who I think I could safely describe as like a little freaked out about the state of magazines. I don't know whether it's coincidence or not, but like the last couple of months have been particularly rough. Like Great Carter, editor, Time, Glamour, Rolling Stone selling. Like, yeah, there's all these people in your universe, and particularly in your perch in that universe, who are leaving. And you don't sound freaked out to me at all. I'm not freaked out only because I just always think it's in the people and in the personalities you keep for instance last year you know we went through another round of budget cuts and I was just like I was just bummed for a couple months and I and nothing weighs on you more heavily than those kinds of things and and I remember getting past it and trying to figure out how we were going to readjust the way we used our, our writers readjust the way we balanced between digital and print and when I sat after that process, it was, I remember having dinner with Chris Heath, the writer, and I just said, you know what, I got through the end of that. And I know there will be another round of ways, but what I'm doing constantly is just kind of managing change, which is what I've been doing since, since I got the job. And I have faith that I can figure out the next thing. 
And I said to Chris, I remember we were having dinner and I was like, and I just, after the end of this, I just feel an enormous amount of gratitude that I get to work with people like you and get to work on great, great stories. I'll never, I'll never regret it if I can do that. I assume like budget cuts are a euphemism for having to lay people off. Yeah. Not only. I mean, sometimes those, sometimes budget cuts mean you can't, you have less money to spend on stories or, right. or less money to spend on videos. Do you get better at having those kinds of conversations after being in this job for 15 years almost? I don't know if you get any, if you ever get better at it. I think, I think, um, the best, it's the only way is to just be honest and try to be humane about it and then try to find a way to help them and keep the relationship going. Even people that I had to let go over the years and people that don't work with us full time still have connections to the magazine. And I really do think this, this may be me sounding naive, but I really do believe in this sense of community and and even like I, I always say the, the GQ family and I, maybe that sounds cheeseball but like I actually believe in it and it actually does come from my very first connection to magazines and I told this to Lewis Lapham once I said I know you're not a you are not a sentimental person but the reason why I was drawn to Harper's in the first place was because it felt to me like a community of readers and that it made me feel smarter and that I was I knew that other people were we're reading the same thing. And I still feel like that. I feel like I, I have this obligation to a community of readers. And even as that community changes constantly, I just got to do right by them and do great work. I'm going to ask you one more question about doing your job and then we're going to talk about writing. Yeah. Imagine like for whatever reason, something happened, you had to step down. How would you convince the person that you thought was best for that job to take your place? How would you convince them to do that? To take my place at GQ? Yeah. Like, just say something happens in the cosmos. You can't do that anymore. Right. It wouldn't be difficult at all. I would just be like, this job is awesome. Sometimes it's stressful. You get to run great stories. You get to work with great people. Why wouldn't you take the job? I guess my implication is, like, maybe that person is reluctant about taking up the head of a glossy magazine in 2017. Right. Well, the first thing I would say is that, like, you are a fool if you think you're becoming just the editor of a glossy magazine and you know you're becoming the editor of all those things and hopefully this person cares about all that stuff cares about feature writing but also cares about video and and what they can do in all kinds of platforms and they're not thinking i think people have this perception that the world of glossy magazines was just this like we all sat around like in the days of Art Cooper drinking whiskey and taking town cars. The culture has changed so much over the years. Again, the ones that, to me, the ones that thrive are the ones that feel that like I'm just going to maximize what I can do, feel fortunate for what I can do, and recognize that whatever job I think I'm getting is not really the job I'm getting. It's the job that's going to be in three years, in five years. And you can't sell somebody on the job that is. It's the job that it's going to be. All right, let's talk about writing. Yeah. You've been in this job for 15 years, almost, coming up? Coming up, yep. Uh, God, I'm old. <laughs> I'm just going to keep saying that over and over again. What are the stories that have stuck with you? You've overseen hundreds and hundreds of incredible feature stories. So which which are the ones that stick with you? 
I mean, so, 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 so many, but um, they're the ones that have a ton of voice and a ton of heart and have some kind of unique perch, some unique point of view on that whole world. So, I mean, when I think, when you said that, I my mind went to John Jeremiah Sullivan's Christian rock piece, Upon This Rock. That was a piece where... It, even just in the editing stage, we were just like, we were just gleeful. We just knew that it was just something really special and weird and <laughs> fucking cool. And that it also had heart to it. And there, I mean, there's this part in it, I'm gonna name some other pieces, but there's this part in it where John, uh, I mean, I grew up in Catholic, I went to Catholic uh, actually 12 years, 16 years, even Catholic university. And uh, so I grew up in this culture a little bit. and. There's this line where John Sullivan says, "Jesus, man, I, 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 I like that guy." You know, it's just <laughs> a, it's this thing about how he really dug Jesus and how Jesus. There was a time when he was in love with Jesus, and it's actually this very funny. I mean, it's it's very only John Sullivan could write um, this as deftly as he does. But this reckoning that he had when what he was doing with that piece was reckoning with his faith, his previous faith, and other people who had a faith he no longer did. And of course, he did it with just like literary pyrotechnics and in inimitable style and completely memorable opening scene. Yeah. One of the greats. Yeah. Yeah. Leads. I spend a lot of time on leads. Um, and I'll, I, I can come back to that. But when you, but also pieces like George Saunders' Buddha Boy, which was about this mystical kid that had been uh, in a state of kind of hyper meditation, almost like frozen. And people were visiting from all over. And he basically became like a, a holy entity. And George would just went over there to find out what this was. That was the, that was the assignment. And we were like, George, would you do this? Um, but that piece, I think, um, you know, there's so many pieces by Jean Marie Laskus that sit with me, that whole series of Hidden America that she did um, with air traffic controllers, coal miners. I remember when my mom wanted to talk to me about the coal miners piece. She's like, I never thought I'd care about coal miners. But she hooked me from the first sentence. I was like, ah, I got mom, yes. <laughs> but those pieces, her piece, her piece on Joe Biden, her piece, The Bureau of Way Too Many Guns, and stories like Wells Tower's piece on um, Burning Man when he took his dad to Burning Man. I love the Dear Leader Dreams of Sushi, the, the piece by Adam Johnson. I love Sean Flynn's piece, which is just becoming a movie. It was called No Exit, and now it's becoming uh, Only the Brave. And so those Chris Heath's Zanesville um, Zoo piece is another, like that's just a masterful, masterful piece. Taffy Ackner's piece on Sugar Daddies. Those are just a few that yeah. come to my mind. That uh, Mike Patterny's Suicide Catcher. I love reading these pieces. I read them again and again and again. I love reading them. There's these moments where I will, you know, I love um, running to a lunch or dinner by myself sitting in a bar and just reading the piece i read it at every stage first proof second proof third proof but also even later once it's published I, I there's these stories that i have relationship with that i just i love reading over and over again they're almost like my grimm's fairy tales <laughs> well there's something i mean there's a bunch of things that you just said that i want to ask more about but one one thing that's so striking about that group of stories like there's this kind of gq story that I've been reading for years, years and years. That's the kind of like crazy entertaining yeah. 
hilarious adventure insane story like almost can't believe it story mm-hmm. you know like in a way i almost think of those as gq stories mm. we we used to have this um i guess we still do have this category at the end of the year we do this best of the year list and we had a category that was like wildly entertaining yeah just most wildly entertaining stories <laughs> and like there was always like three gq stories on most wildly entertaining that makes me so happy to hear that but the stories that you just talked about are different yeah they're all pretty quiet stories and they're like emotional stories yeah and they're almost all stories in which the writer opens themselves up quite a bit that's true that's just striking to me that those are the ones of all these like hundreds that those are the ones that you pick out yeah i mean they don't strike me as quiet which is interesting but i will say that they'd strike me as emotional and i think that if there was one thing that makes that draws me to a story and that i'm also always trying to pull out of a story is the human emotional connection because if you read the Zanesville Zoo story has these it's got lions and tigers and bears literally but the portrait that emerges out of it is a very human a complex troubling human story of a guy that you know there's that last scene in the piece where you find out that he had a monkey that uh, he felt protected him during the Vietnam War and you know it's there's all these other things in that piece, and there's also a line in the piece that says, Terry Thompson was the guy's name, if you remember, in the Zanes, the guy that was a zookeeper that let all those animals out and then sh- killed himself. And Chris won the you know a National Magazine Award for reporting for that because it was incredibly exhaustively reporting. But the line in that piece that sticks with me is that Terry Thompson's story was told round the world, but also it was rarely told. And the line, that line says so much to me because what it means is that a lot of times what happens to the stories that are really compelling to me are you're, you're looking through, our news media simply doesn't have the time, temperament, or metabolism to really look into. And that I'm always looking to see if there's a story where if you just pause the tape a little bit and you went to look at that story that people already think that they digested or they already think that they heard, could you, like Chris Heath's Uber killer piece, could you go back and see what, what made that guy do that? And I think if there's anything that draws all these stories, G. Marie's story on Joe Biden, you know, a guy that had been written about a zillion times, that to me that's the best profile of Joe Biden that's ever been written. And that's because she has that empathetic ear. If you ever go out to eat with her, it's just like, as you have, I think, she is the best listener. Of all time. Of all time, yes. Yeah. And, and, and that act of listening is an ennobling act. It makes somebody feel that that they're a little bit bigger than they might feel in their normal life, that someone actually wants to hear their story. We do, we're curious. And you also will always find, if you find the emotional factor in a story, that story has a far, far, far greater chance of being memorable, right? I think nowadays we're so full of factoids and so full of, streaming data that a story that hits us that makes us feel empathy or makes us feel like there is a a real human aching soul at the other side of it just stops us i mean i'm thinking about this piece we just ran on the accidental assassins of north korea that writer just i mean it's a great piece of reporting but what he did was essentially find the the two women 
at the core of that story that were they didn't know that they were being assassins. And he told their they're both in jail. They couldn't talk to us. And he found a way to very empathetically reveal that they were just kind of in a funny way. I feel like it's a metaphor for all the stuff going on in the world right now where, you know, larger international forces kind of exploit the most innocent human and you end up feeling nothing but empathy for them because they're sort of washed out of their, you know, of, of their local economy and they end up in some strange city and then suddenly the next thing they know they think they're going to be stars and they're going to be in a reality show and they get completely fooled into assassinating the brother of the North Korean leader. To me, that was a feat of storytelling and uh, a lot of it was just the human empathy that went in that reporting. Finding that empathy, telling stories with that empathy, is that something that you can teach a writer or are you looking for people who have some natural ability to do that because it's not something that you can teach them how to do? I think some writers are just truly obviously gifted and are more empathetic than others. I think sometimes you can push people's curiosities toward empathy. I mean, I think the the writers we're talking about are all incredibly empathetic people. But if you're asking the question, you know, is it possible to teach that? I think it is in the sense that, you know, our notes are always about like, tell us more about this. Tell us more about oh, that's interesting. It's funny because uh, I just got this note from a writer that was telling me he did a little piece and it was like an essay about reducing his wardrobe. And in the piece, there was this line about how his father had gone through this uh, death and suicide in his family. And it was just like this one little line. And I was like, okay, I need to hear more about that. And then we ended up expanding it. And now it's becoming a book for him. And part of it he was just saying was, you know, thinking about my father and why don't I want to write that piece was really about my father. And to me, that is, that's what you're always trying to push people is sometimes there's these things that you're not really thinking about that have a deeper emotional connection and you don't want to push it to the point where it's like a button that doesn't push. But if there is something there that is a little deeper, by all means, explore it. Part of your job I mean, you have a bunch of people who are working for you doing this too, but part of your job is is looking for new voices all the time yeah. to bring into this like GQ family that you've been talking about. <laughs> what are you looking for in people? How do you make that choice? Do, where do people need to be as a writer for them to be ready for you? Well, sometimes it's just a great idea. And I would also say that Lots of people have great ideas. And then my next question is, how can you, how can I have confidence that you'll execute it and you'll bring something different? And that's a whole nother conversation. The thing that I'm always, I am always trying to bring in new writers. And sometimes it's like, I'll look at, I'll look at fiction writers. I'll think, gosh, you can tell certain novelists have a nonfiction gift if they if they went out into the world their curiosity is so great george saunders is you know a natural reporter even though he's the world's greatest novelist and short story writer um and i was thinking about karen russell and she wrote this piece called about the one-eyed matador and that piece was that's a perfect lead to me a perfect lead of course it's 
you know, talking about an eye getting poked out by a, <laughs> by a bull. <laughs> Hard to screw that one up. But it was just like Karen writes every single sentence. I love these writers. Our editor, Dan Riley, who just has this book, Fly Me, is like this too. Like every sentence just sings. It's incredible. And it doesn't have this sense of feeling like it's been worked over. It probably has. But it doesn't have this sense of being polished until the life comes out of it. And Karen just blew me away just how a fiction writer could just so instantly transition into a, a journalist. That doesn't always doesn't always work. But I'm also looking for writers that recognize that what they're doing is not just reporting a story, not just giving news of the world, but actually telling stories. That's a harder thing to do. It's just, I always think about, um, I always say that Liz Gilbert is the single most gifted storyteller I've ever worked with because she would sit down there and say, I'm going to tell you a story about this. And she'd do it quite nakedly. I mean, I remember one of the first pieces I got to work on with her was this piece called Lucky Jim, which was about a guy that had, he was a quadru, he was a paraplegic. He got back into shape. He, you know, was doing marathons. And then at a marathon, he was run over by a truck and he became a quadriplegic. And he then became an inspirational speaker. That story was just astonishing, the fact of it. And I also thought, okay, how am I going to, how are we going to tell a story about the most depressing thing that you could ever possibly imagine happening to you? And I remember, this was actually when Art Group was editor, I remember taking Liz into Art's office and saying, there really isn't any reason you should assign this story to anyone else but Liz Gilbert because Liz will will find a way to make this piece about something else. Um, she'll struggle to find that meaning in it. But I'm always looking for people that recognize the larger story that they might themselves think they're looking for and trying to find something, even if it's a news story or if it's a, it's a story that is in the news, like the North Korean assassins, What's the way to tell the story that is going to affect people? I always say in the simplest sense that I don't want to just publish stories that even get good reviews or, or that readers love. I want, to get, I want to publish stories that fucking slay people, that affect them, that they remember. I even think that's kind of the simplest standard is like it means so much to me that you say that you think of these stories as GQ stories because that means that, one, you've remembered them. And they have a, a kind of unique character. And if that's human emotion, if that is funny as shit, because sometimes that can be it too. I told you earlier I wanted to talk a little bit about leads too. And that's another thing. I can tell by a pitch whether somebody knows how to write a lead. Because in a way, a pitch, it's like a brief encapsulation of your gift of storytelling, hmm. right? And sometimes I can tell a writer gets too nervous and psychs himself out in a pitch. And then it's just like, wow, this pitch sounds like the cliff note version of a great story, but it doesn't give me any faith that this person can tell a great story. And sometimes the stories that I go for just have this 
they might have missed all these other details, which we can get later on in the reporting. But if they figure out that this story about North Korean uh, assassins is really about like this crazy story of two women who got brought into an international conspiracy, the international conspiracy, which is outrageous in and of itself, in an odd way, becomes the less memorable thing about that piece. The most memorable thing about that piece is the two women at the center of it. I'm not sure you realize this. Like, you just talked for a long time. <laughs> in, a, in, like, a, in a really wonderful way, in a totally captivating way. But for a really long time about how much you love this stuff. And it, it made me wonder a couple of things. One is... I feel like I've been like dancing around this question with you the whole time. And I think you kind of just answered it, which is your job is really fun. It also seems really hard at this current moment. And the way you just talked about those stories kind of helps explain to me how you are so game for the job, you know, like it just, it feels pretty like nakedly optimistic to me. Does that sound right to you? (laughs) I guess so. Yeah. I think I am pretty optimistic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you just yeah. seem so hyped. <laughs> and then, the, the, which uh, is another question. I think GQ is such a strong brand, right? Like you guys are celebrating your 60th anniversary. Yeah. It's been around for a long time. It has so much to do with fashion. Yeah. Did it ever drive you crazy that, that that's what GQ is and GQ is maybe not as well known for these things that you just beautifully monologued about? Yes, it does frustrate me sometimes. When we call like a senator's office... The first thing they say is, so you're going to put me in a suit? Yeah. And I get so tired of that question. By the same token, I recognize that that is the secret to it all, that I can get away with murder (laughs) because people think one thing. And remember what I said earlier about constancy and surprise? They're constantly surprised (laughs) that GQ does this stuff. And I could sit there and be frustrated by it, or I could just say, okay, this is an opening, this is an opportunity, and I'll surprise the fuck out of them, and I'll do it again next month. Are you still uh, surprising the fuck out of yourself? I mean, I, I, I can't imagine not wanting to, or not hoping that I was going to surprise myself or uh, other people, but I'm also like, I'm just thinking that now it's a good time since that whole business is broken, just, I think in some ways it's a freeing up time that people can if the system is a little broken you have a little bit more leeway to experiment so that's my next year and some is just going to be about experimenting make it sound real fun man (laughs) jim thank you for doing this thanks max Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week was Janelle Pfeiffer, and our intern is Angela Velez. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp and Squarespace. And thanks very much to uh, Jim Nelson. I'm going to be a little earnest here for a second. Uh, I was actually legitimately, uh, genuinely inspired by that conversation. So thank you, Jim. Uh, We will see you next week. If you would like to see us in person, we'll be in Chicago on November 12th. I'll be interviewing Zoe Chase from This American Life. And uh, that's a live show. You can buy tickets. Another live show, November 15th. It's a Wednesday night. Evan will be in San Francisco interviewing Kara Swisher. Should be a great conversation. Links are in the show notes. Come say hello. 
We'll be hanging out after both of those. Okay, now, really, we'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.